What is up, bitch? What is up, bitch? Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show today on what is basically a very special day to yours truly. I am going to be getting the vaccine today. What? Yes, um, New York opened it up to people who are age 30 and over um, a few days ago. And actually, today is the last day of 30 plus before it's opened up to everybody in the state of New York. So I got in under the gun and it was hard to get an appointment even, even when it was just 30 plus. But forget it, tomorrow it'll be mission impossible to get an appointment because literally everybody in the state of New York is going to have the ability and uh, appointments are going just faster than anything has ever gone ever. So uh, I actually had three members of my family working 24-7 around the clock trying to uh, schedule an appointment and uh, got lucky enough to get an appointment. And the uh, it's, a, it's at 3 o'clock today, so I actually have to probably hold the show to about two hours so I can give myself enough headroom to, uh, you know, get, get some videos up on YouTube um, and still make it for the appointment. So, but I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, I'll, I'll do, I'll probably do a little video of this later after I get the, uh, the vaccine. I'll sit in my car and tell you what the experience was like. I am, I think I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be one of the, one of the few at this point getting the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and the Johnson and Johnson one is one shot and done. So I do not need two shots. I'm getting the one shot one. Um, Pretty cool. And apparently this vaccine is not what's called the mRNA vaccine, uh, which is the newer technology. That's the Moderna and the Pfizer one or the mRNA vaccine. Um, This one is the traditional vaccine approach, which is like basically a dead version of the virus. Uh, I actually don't think it's a dead version of COVID-19, though. I think it's a dead version of some other virus that they've made it mimic COVID-19, something along those lines. Anyway, I don't want to do bro science on you too much, but I will be getting the vaccine today, and I'll let everybody know how I feel. Uh, I am mentally prepared to experience very unpleasant feelings for about a day or two, but hopefully after that, I'll be in the clear, and uh, your boy will be fully vaccinated. So anyway, that's a little bit of good news to start the day here. Um, I will go ahead and give you a little bit of tease of what you have to look forward to. i got a couple stories on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and they are not positive. Charles Barkley made the show today. Hunter Biden made the show today. We're going to talk about what's going on in New Zealand and how they're running circles around us. I'll give you the details of the New York bill that legalized marijuana. Um, And Fox host comparing Joe Biden to Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Okay. uh, That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, Anyway, all right, let's get started. And we're going to do that with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Brings me no pleasure to do this segment yet again. Uh, I wish this wasn't the case, but it is. Politico is reporting the following. Vulnerable Democrats fret after getting a shock. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign cash. Ocasio-Cortez's largesse and an oversight at the campaign headquarters has raised awkward questions among her colleagues. So let me just sum up for you what happened here. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is donating to centrist establishment Democrats. Um, Most Democrats who do this, elected Democrats who do this, 
they give to the DCCC, which is basically established Democrat Central, establishment Democrat Central. And um, what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did is she didn't go through the DCCC because the DCCC doesn't like her and establishment Democrats don't like her. What she did is she donated directly to centrist establishment anti-Medicare for all Democrats, directly to their campaigns. Now, the reason why this is a story is many of those Democrats saw that she donated and they were like, I don't want your money. And the reason I don't want your money is because you're, you know, a big, bad, far lefty and the Republicans are going to use this against us and they're going to use it to say we're all democratic socialists and we're for icky things like health care and living wages and we don't want to be dragged down in our more moderate districts and we can see the attack ads running now that link you to us and we don't want it. So some of them are returning the money. Now, the next question is, okay, Kyle, how much is she really given? How much did she really give them? Well, uh, according to the article, it's about $160,000. See, the thing is, a lot of people don't know this. The thing is, she's a phenomenal fundraiser, but she's not a phenomenal fundraiser in the traditional sense where, like, Nancy Pelosi gets all of her money through big financial institutions, through corporate America. And so that's one of the reasons why she's, you know, I mean, she's been in government since 1602, but the other reason why Nancy Pelosi is at the top of the party is because she's one of the most prolific fundraisers and she gets it from big money donors. Ocasio-Cortez rivals Nancy Pelosi in fundraising, but Ocasio-Cortez gets all her money through small dollar donations from regular people. So this was her trying to, and they bring this up in the article too, they're like, oh, it appears like this is a good sign for democratic unity, democratic unity, even though the establishment centrist types hate the fact that she gave the money. So, so what, what's going on here? What's going on here? I mean, listen, I wish the answer wasn't this gross, but I think it is this gross. Ocasio-Cortez, I don't know how many of you recall this, but recently she was up for a vote for a committee assignment. It was viewed as like a foregone conclusion that she would get that committee assignment. And then she lost because virtually all the establishment centrists rallied against her and they picked somebody who's a conservative Democrat and the conventional wisdom is the reason they voted against her is because there have been a number of examples of Ocasio-Cortez supporting primaries against elected establishment Democrats. And in Washington, D.C., that's viewed as complete heresy. That's viewed as like, how dare you? We all made it inside the club, and now you're launching cruise missiles at other people inside the club. That's not acceptable. And so this was a way to try to discipline her to get her to fall in line and be a good little girl for the party. And that's exactly what she ended up doing. So this is her waving the white flag and saying, okay, okay, my bad, my bad. Yes, I, uh, I bucked the party narrative perhaps too much. And so now I want to get back in everybody's good graces. What can I do to help? And then she donates $160,000 to centrist Democrats in more so-called moderate districts. These are anti-Medicare for all Democrats. And so this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez trying to get back in the good graces of the establishment. That's what this is. Because they came after her when she stepped out of line and endorsed primary opponents against some of them. And instead of doubling down on that fight, being very public with that fight, you know, growing a backbone and saying, no, I'm supporting primary opponents against you because you guys aren't for Medicare for all. You guys aren't for the policies that I'm for. You're not for the American people. Instead of doing that, what does she do? Okay, 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 you win. 
but please uh, don't come after me anymore. Don't kick me off committees anymore. Don't do anything negative against me because now I'm going to help you. And it's like, I think she's doing like $5,000 a pop to a bunch of them. So, I mean, there, there is literally no way of spinning this that could potentially be positive for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, I guess you could make some sort of stretch theory of like, she's donating to them in order to try to tank their campaigns because she knows that it might hurt them if they're associated with her in that district. And so it's like a high-level chess move of like, oh, I could tank them by acting like I'm helping them because now my name is associated with them and there are going to be attacks launched on that. But I don't, that's not true. I don't think that's true at all. I think the reality is what I described, which is she knows that, you know, the establishment doesn't like her because she stepped out of line one too many times. And so now she's trying to be a good girl and get back in their good graces. So this is her trying to play ball with the club in order to, uh, to work with them, get along with them, and not be an outcast. There's no, I really think there's no other logical explanation. And so, I mean, this is a betrayal of what she was sent there to do. She was sent there to shake things up. She even said it. Hey, if I'm a one-termer but I get shit done, I'd rather be a one-termer and get shit done than be there forever and not get anything done. This is a betrayal of what we sent her to do. I mean, when we created Justice Democrats, and she was one of the first Justice Democrats, the whole conversation was the people that we're electing are for our policies. They can't be corrupt. They can't take any big money or corporate money. And they have to be for, you know, Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, ending the wars. They have to be for all the right things. And these are the only people we're supporting. And now with all of the name recognition she has and all the influence and power she has. She's trying to go along to get along and donate to more centrist candidates. And by the way, their reaction is just too perfect because it shows you what we knew they were going to do anyway. Even with her trying to get along with them now and helping them, they're like, they run to political, they run to the media to be like, we don't want your help, we don't like you, we don't agree with you. So she's trying to be extra nice to them to get along, and they still spit in her face. It's like, you know, you want to sit her down and say, what did you learn? What did you learn? These people don't like you. They're never going to like you. They're never going to agree with you. And what you're doing is absolutely pathetic, donating to them, trying to get back in their good graces. Like, no actual lefty should be supporting any Democrat, especially in, like, primary elections, if they're not supportive of our policies. Why would you do that? The only reason you do that is because you're a, a tribal, partisan, blue, no matter who clown. And you think rah, rah team, yay Democrats, no matter what they actually do substantively. And I think that's stupid. I think that's stupid. How have you know, the attempts at marginal improvement gone over the past few decades? How have they gone? You know, you, you take one step forward and two steps backward because then when you do the incremental change, the Republicans come in there and destroy it and make things even worse. This stuff isn't going to stand the test of time. You know, FDR is rolling over in his grave right now, looking at how this party is completely taken over by corporations, and looking at, you know, the neoliberal reform era. This is devastating. This is terrible. And so 
even with her reaching out to these centrists and establishment types and giving them money, they still spit in her face. So she's doubly embarrassed and besmirched. It's, it's beyond pathetic. They're never going to like you. They're never going to agree with you. So you may as well have the courage of your convictions and stand up and fight for the things you believe in and take everybody down along with you. You know what I mean? Like, go out with some dignity and some honor if you're going to go out. These guys are assholes. They've always been assholes. So why are you trying to go along to get along with them when they're going to spit in your eye anyway? Unless, of course, you don't really believe the things that you claimed you believed in. And that ultimately, the higher goal for you is climbing within the party. And I don't want that to be the case. I don't want that to be the case. But reading a story like this, it's hard to not conclude that. Because there should be no scenario wherein Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez donates to Democrats who are against the left's main policies. So, again, completely unacceptable. She's really giving a lot of ammo to her left-wing critics here, for sure. For sure. Do I think there are some criticisms of her that are completely unfair? I do. I do. But any criticism over this is absolutely fair. It's absolutely fair. You're donating to people who are ideological enemies within the party. If there is a democratic civil war going on, and there is, you're taking the side of the enemy in that battle. You're taking the side of the corporatists. Why would you donate money to them? You should be launching attacks against them, using public pressure campaigns to get them to fall in line behind our popular policies. And this is not that. I'm close to that. Oh, my God. It's just, it really is depressing, man. This makes me depressed. What has happened to her? What has happened to her? $160,000 to establishment Democrats, and they spit in your face anyway and embarrass you anyway, tell you, I don't want your money. She's really not a great leader for the movement and a great leader for the moment. She's just not. She's running around like a chicken with her head cut off. She gets disrespected by the establishment of Nancy Pelosi, and then she falls in line and tries to get them back on her side. There is no insider game that you're going to win, AOC. You're going to get crushed in the insider game. That's their specialty. That's what they're good at. That's what they're good at. The only way you win is doing the outsider game, the public pressure campaign game, the activist game. You should want all of them to be your enemies, and you should wear that as a badge of honor. Instead, you act like a subservient little puppy dog, and they disrespect you again anyway. Congrats. Congrats. This has got to feel great. Okay. That made me sad. That story made me sad. Made me very sad. All right, I got to do one more on her. Unfortunately, I got to do one more story on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez here. Uh, This is not good for her. Take a look. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was among the least effective members of the last Congress, according to a new survey from the nonpartisan Center for Effective Lawmaking, a joint project of Vanderbilt University and the University of Virginia. AOC introduced a total of 21 bills, which the center defined as uh, substantive. But that is where the story ends. Her legislation received no action in committees, no floor votes, and none ever became law according to the center, which takes its data from uh, congress.gov. Quote, she introduced a lot of bills, 
but she was not successful at having them receive any sort of action in committee or beyond committee, and if they can't get through committee, they cannot pass the House. Alan Wiseman, a Vanderbilt political scientist and co-director of the center, told The Post, quote, it's clear that she was trying to get her legislative agenda moving and engage with the lawmaking process, Wiseman added, but she wasn't as successful as some other members were, even among other freshmen, at getting people to pay attention to her legislation. So when you look at the numbers, uh, among Democrats, she was 230th out of 240. 230th out of 240. Now, some might say, well, this, I mean, if you're the left flank of the party, this is just what's going to happen. That's actually not true, because I think they referenced, was it Rashida Tlaib? I think it was Rashida Tlaib, who actually ranked pretty well. She had a number of her bills were voted on. So now... Let's talk about how everybody's going to react to this, okay? What I saw, believe it or not, is the right is saying, no, 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 that's actually not true. She's incredibly effective. That's weird. Well, why would they? This appears to be a relatively empirical way of judging it. You know what I mean? Like, they're not, there's very little opinion in this. They're just saying, look at the number of bills they proposed. How many got any action in committee? How many were voted on? How many became law? See, it's a very empirical way of looking at the situation when it comes to policy. Um, but on Fox News, they had to say, oh, no, no, that's not true. She's actually one of the most effective. Now, why are they saying that? Why are they, they're saying that because they want to have their boogeyman. They want to have somebody where, you know, they could scare their 87-year-old audience about on a daily basis, and they've settled on AOC, and so they don't want to lose that as a propaganda argument that they make 24-7. And so they're insistent that, no, 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 well, policy is not really the thing that matters the most. What matters the most is the culture, and she's impacting the culture more than anything, and so therefore we disagree with the way that they looked at this, and she's actually, you know, she's actually um, incredibly effective. That's what the right is saying. The left actually haven't seen say anything on this. I think most of them are just dodging this report that came out, and they're not talking about it. Um, but, yeah, I could see – you could say one argument the left could make is, well, it's not her fault that the rest of Congress is phenomenally corrupt and bought and owned by big money interests. And so, yeah, you might be an effective lawmaker and get your bills passed, but what all your bills would suck and they would serve Wall Street and the military-industrial complex and corporate America. And so should we celebrate that? Should we call that effective? Sure, it's effective, but it's effective towards negative ends. So it's, like, it's almost like, what are, you, are you punishing her for actually being idealistic and having good ideas and the rest of Congress sort of stonewalling her good ideas? So that's one argument that the left can make. They can say, hey, it's true, but... That's not her fault. It's because the rest of, the, of Congress is so phenomenally corrupt, and she's not getting anything done because they're all corrupt and she's not. And so her priorities never get through. That's one way to look at it. Um, the way I look at it is that's partly true, the, the left-wing theoretical argument I just made. But, yes, it's also the case that she is, first and foremost, you know, somebody who tweets all day and somebody who generates media attention. And is there something to be said about that? Sure. But is that the end-all, be-all? No. And I do think the fact that she's this ineffective is an indictment on her. I do. Because, and this is a point I've made a thousand times on this show, and you would think it's, it shouldn't be controversial. 
But it is controversial. Now, you guys hear it, and you might totally agree. But, you know, there's a lot of people who say they agree and then go on to disagree with this in pretty blatant ways. So the real way, if you're on the left and you want to get stuff accomplished um, in Congress, there's a few ways to do it. One way is doing the type of bipartisanship that's on your terms. So in other words, there are Republican Congress people who want to end wars. There are. There's a number of them. So what you can do is you can work with the libertarian right on ending wars. You could work with the libertarian right on civil liberties and anti-patriot act stuff. You could work with them on ending the drug war. You can work with the few people who are populist right on like the $2,000 checks. There were a number of Republicans who supported the $2,000 checks. You could work with people on the populist right on trade policy because they say, okay, we want to increase U.S. manufacturing and so we want to stop outsourcing jobs. You could work with them on stuff like that. So you can form alliances on very specific issues with different factions of the right. On some economic stuff, there's a handful of populist right people you could work with, and along with a number of people on the left who will work with you on that. Um, And on, again, war, so foreign policy, civil liberties, the drug war, you can work with the libertarian right people who agree with you on that. And again, a number of people on the left as well. So that's one way of doing it. The bipartisanship on your terms, that would, and Ro Khanna has proven that this is effective. Because Ro Khanna did it, Bernie Sanders did it with Yemen. The whole Yemen thing, the stop our support of the genocide in Yemen, that passed the House and that passed the Senate. It just died on Trump's desk. Okay, so, but this can be done. This stuff can be done. That's one way to do it. But in order to do that, you need to not use the language of, oh, all my colleagues on the right are irredeemable deplorables. And, you know, they want me killed and they're terrible people and they're bigots and they're racist and this and that. Now, can you criticize them when they're wrong about stuff? Of course you can, and you should. But you need to be clear and specific and don't be vituperative and over-the-top and hyperbolic and unnecessarily dramatic. And unfortunately, I think that's what AOC does all the time. So she's ineffective. You know, nobody really likes her there. Now, some of that you can blame on them, of course, but some of that you've got to look in the mirror. So that's one way to, to, to get stuff done. The other way to get stuff done is the strategy that is even more you know, impossible for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other people on the left. And it's, it's honestly pathetic, but it's true. Um, copy the Tea Party approach, you know? So it should be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ro Khanna, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal, Mark Pocan, um, Raul Grahava. There should be a block, Ilhan Omar, of like a dozen left-wing Congress people who are willing to hold bills hostage and who are willing to play, you know, aggressive politics, who are willing to block things when things need to be blocked, who are willing to band together and build coalition and take out the flamethrower when necessary to get people to fall in line. You would be so much more effective if you actually were principled and unapologetic and aggressive on issues where you can build that coalition and hold that coalition. But there they seem fundamentally incapable of mounting a public pressure campaign. They seem fundamentally incapable of taking on the fights that need to be, you know, that need to be taken head on. And the result is, if you're not going to act like the Tea Party and have a coalition that's aggressive and direct in blocking bills and, and pushing your own bills, and you're not going to do bipartisanship on your terms, 
and you know, build bridges on specific issues, well, what's left? What's left is you rank, what is it, 230 out of 240 or something like that? You're going to rank 230 out of 240, and none of your stuff's even going to get a committee hearing. Definitely none of this stuff is going to be voted on. None of it's going to become law. So I just don't think she's good at the job of legislating. I don't. Now, again, some of that, to be fair, is because, by definition, a lot of the stuff that she would focus on, that she would care about, like, for example, um, one of, I think the first bill she proposed was limiting uh, the interest rate, like predatory interest rates, made it so that nobody could charge more than 12% interest, right? And, you know, you have pay, payday loan industry sharks who charge 200% interest. And so it would ban loan sharking effectively. It would ban predatory payday loans. And it would go after big financial institutions as well and limit the amount of interest they could charge. So, yes, you can make the argument Congress is never going to go for that because they're so bought and owned by financial industries that they're not going to go along with an idea that's so good for the people and so bad for their donors. So, yes, I want to be clear. There is truth in that criticism that her agenda, by definition, is harder to get through because it's for the people. And Congress is not for the people. I think that's true. But I also think, you know, there's a reason why Bernie Sanders was way more effective at getting stuff done. Do an apples-to-apples comparison. However, you know, take the same time period for Bernie Sanders, and he got a lot more accomplished. Number one, they called him the Amendment King. He always managed to get amendments into unrelated bills that were phenomenal for the people. Number two, he worked with Ron Paul on a number of things that were successful. That's the libertarian right and the populist left working together. He worked with Mike Lee on the thing uh, involving Yemen. You know, he's similar ideology to her, but he actually gets shit done. So he's just better at playing the game of legislating. And I just don't think she's that good at it. Some of it's not her fault, but some of it is her fault. And I, I honestly, I think it's really sad. So the left needs to get their act together. And, you know, I'm partly to blame for this because when we co-founded Justice Democrats, I naively thought if you just get people in positions of power who, who agree on the policy stuff, you know, they're there for Medicare for all, they're there for free college, they're there for living wages, they're there for ending the wars, they're there for ending the drug war, so on and so forth, that that's it. Everything else would take care of itself. No, it turns out there's a lot more that goes into it. They need to be right on the policy, but then they need to be intelligent strategically, and they need to be leaders with phenomenal backbone that's incredibly rare. And so if you don't have those second pieces of it, then what do you have at the end of the day? Somebody in power who's, effect, who's ineffective but is a phenomenal tweeter. It's not going to get much done. And now we know empirically that's correct. Okay, next. I'm going to give you an update on the Matt Gates situation. So I have an update for you on the Matt Gates situation, creepy Matt Gates situation. Take a look. Here's NBC Tally Jackson. This morning, new allegations about Republican Congressman Matt Gates, a report of a Justice Department investigation focusing on Gates and an indicted Florida politician, and allegations of their involvement with multiple women who were recruited online for sex and received cash payments according to the New York Times, citing sources close to the investigation. 
The Times reporting investigators are focusing on Gates and Joel Greenberg, a former tax collector in Seminole County, Florida, indicted last year and now pleading not guilty to a federal sex trafficking charge and other crimes. The Times writing Greenberg initially met the women through websites that connect people who go on dates in exchange for gifts, fine dining, travel, and allowances. Mr. Greenberg introduced the women to Mr. Gates, who also had sex with them. According to people close to the investigation who spoke with the Times, some of the men and women took ecstasy, an illegal mood-altering drug, before having sex, including Mr. Gates. The Times reports it reviewed scripts from Cash App, a mobile payments app, and Apple Pay that reportedly show payments from Gates and Greenberg to one of the women and a payment from Greenberg to a second woman, according to the Times report. NBC News has not reviewed those documents. Gates denied ever paying a woman for sex. And a spokesman says Matt Gates refutes all the disgusting allegations completely. The Florida Republican already in the spotlight. After revelations earlier this week, the Justice Department is examining whether Gates violated federal sex trafficking laws by having a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old and paid for her to travel with him. Homeboy's in trouble, son. It looks like he's going down. It looks like he's going to jail, jail. Like, real deal Holyfield jail. That's what it looks like. Um, so, I mean, there's a, there's a big investigation going on right now. A dude who he was, like, best friends with is already serving time over some sex crime. Um, it looks like he regularly, frequently was paying for prostitutes, and now we know some of those prostitutes are potentially underage, and there were orgies with them. There's a trail because they used whatever, Cash App and Apple Pay and other things that investigators apparently have some evidence of. Uh, I think one of the women came out and took down the person who's like his best friend who was a tax collector in Florida. I don't, you know, what Trump proved is that you can basically bluster your way out of any scandal, but there is an exception to that. And the exception to that is if there's an official investigation into you and they have the goods and they have the evidence, then it doesn't matter what you say or how aggressive you are or how convincing you sound. They have the evidence. They have the evidence. And you're going down, son. You're going down. So this is what you get, creepy Matt Gates. Creepy Matt Gates. Paying for underage sex. And, you know, somebody made a great point. They said, this is the exact sort of shit that Epstein did, where you basically coerce these young underage girls into doing this stuff. And there is no, I mean, by definition, according to the law, there is no consent when somebody's underage, but there's for somebody to get to that position. I mean, this is what, this is what child sex trafficking is where there's coercion and there's exploitation and you get these poor girls into these compromising, terrible situations. I mean, they're children, they're kids and they really don't know what they're doing. But again, and the law is clear that once you get over that legal age, then you have agency according to the law, and there needs to be some extra level of criminality, you know. But when you're underage, 
by definition, this stuff is ex, uh, exploitation and coercive and criminal. And if they got the goods on him with underage women, that's game, set, match, dude. You're done. You're over. It's, there is no coming back from that. There's a Florida pro- prosecutor on TV this morning who was like, he could go to jail for life over this. For life. There you go. And, and we'll see, again, how many allies stick by him. I, the, the right is generally um, on the side of holding the line no matter what their people are accused of. But, again, there's a big difference between the Trump scandals where he could just sort of power his way through it and this, which is there's an investigation into you and they seemingly have the goods and your best friend already went down on some creepy shit. And so now it's just tick-tock, dog. Tick-tock. You know, it, it seems like it's a matter of time. And by the way, um, I have news from behind the scenes that apparently Tucker Carlson was furious the other night when Matt Gates came on to respond to the scandal. And Matt Gates repeatedly implicated Tucker. Matt Gates repeatedly um, said, like, I'm not the only person who's accused of some, some impropriety and it turned out to be false. Happened to you too, Tucker. He's like, what? what are, I don't know what he's talking about. And there's another point where he's like, Remember when me and my wife had dinner with you and your wife, Tucker? He's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So he's, you know, Gates is taking everybody down with him seemingly. That's the only thing. I mentioned this in the last segment, too. I mentioned this on Crystal Kylan, friends. That's the only thing that um, gives me a little bit of pause about the whole situation, which is if Matt Gates knows where all the bodies are buried of all the other rich and powerful people, maybe he doesn't go down because he could just – Expose everything. You know, if he's got some Epstein-level knowledge about everybody in Congress who's into some creepy-ass, kinky, illegal shit, maybe they have to sort of let him go or else the whole ring comes down. And I'll tell you what, that whole ring has a lot of power, and they'll probably do anything and everything to make sure the ring doesn't go down, you know? And so that's sort of like an Epstein-like story. But, yeah, this is Epstein-level creepiness where orgies with underage women that you're paying for the sex and – Somebody already went down, and Jesus Christ, it's just, we'll see, we'll see. But, you know, there's probably a lot more dirt out there. And um, what the Epstein scenario should have proved to you is that nothing is too wild, nothing is too extreme, that there are probably creepy, elite child sex rings and gross groups that are into this sort of stuff. And uh, it's, all leak, uh, it's all lurking just beneath the surface. And you'd be surprised at how depraved a lot of these animals are. Okay, next. Charles Barkley went viral the other day. He was hosting, I don't even think this is on NBA on TNT, which is the show they're normally on. I think this was for the NCAA tournament, but I don't know if they were talking about George Floyd in particular, uh, the case that's going on right now with George Floyd or something else, but look at his comments here that blew up on politics. Shared that news, how painful it was. Yeah, but the one thing I took out of that piece was Man, I think most white people and black people are great people. I really believe that in my heart. But I think our system is set up where our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, 
are designed to make us not like each other so they can keep their grasp of money and power. They divide and conquer. I truly believe in my heart most white people and black people are awesome people, but we're so stupid following our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And their only job is, hey, let's make these people not like each other. We don't live in their neighborhoods. We all got money. Let's make the whites and blacks not like, like each other. Let's make rich people and poor people not like each other. Uh, let's, let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe that in my heart. I mean, Corn and I have both said it for a long time. NBA on TNT is the best show on TV, and I don't even think it's close. Um, they're hilarious. They don't just talk about basketball. They talk about everything. They joke around. When they get into politics, it's really interesting. They're the most honest, real people on TV. So I've always been a fan of Charles Barkley. Even every now and then he says something I totally disagree with, but I always like him because I know it's coming from the heart. It's coming from a good place. And what more can you ask of somebody than to be honest with you 24-7, even if sometimes you massively disagree with them? But this is an instance where I don't massively disagree with him. I think he almost perfectly nails it. It's a tick-off, but I think he almost perfectly nails it. So let's break it down. He says, in his opinion, most white people and black people are great people. And um, it appears like the system is designed to keep everybody at each other's throats and always disagreeing, because as long as the regular people are fighting amongst each other, the wealthy run out the back door with all the money and all the power and all the influence and all the control and all of the levers of success in a society. So he brings it up in the Republican-Democrat sense. They just want to have us divided 24-7 along partisan tribal lines. That's true. They want to divide us among racial lines. That's true. He literally says it's divide and conquer. That's true. He brings up it's done for greed and power and money. That's why they do it. That's true. He has a better understanding of politics than I would argue most politicians and certainly any of the media figures on mainstream media who really are airheads and have no idea what the hell they're talking about the overwhelming majority of the time, and they're just robots who spew establishment talking points. I think he's right. I think the only thing he sort of misstates a little bit is the whole rich versus poor thing, because he's right in this sense. I don't think your average person has anything against a rich person who made their fortune in a genuinely meritocratic way. So in other words, I don't think poor people, working class people, look at a surgeon or a doctor or a phenomenal corporate lawyer who holds corporations accountable. I don't think your average person looks at them and says, oh my God, you're making a million dollars a year? Well, that's totally unacceptable, and I'm against that. I don't think that happens. I, and I don't think your average person looks at some athlete, you know, who came from absolutely nothing, busted their ass with hard work, made it to the top, and now they're pulling in $5 million a year or whatever. I don't think your average person looks at that person and says, that's disgusting and unacceptable. Maybe you want to tax them a little bit higher, of course, and that makes sense. You should, but they're not angry at them. They're not angry. I think the problem is the owner class. The problem is the corporations and the billionaires. The problem is the people who rigged the rules for the government to only represent the interests of the establishment and the elites. You have a government that's only responsive to the military-industrial complex. 
that's only responsive to Wall Street, that's only responsive to corporate America and the billionaires. I think that's who your average working class person, that's who they're angry at. So in a sense, it is the wealthy, but it's a fraction of the wealthy. It's a, it's a portion of the wealthy who are cheating effectively and who have rigged the rules against regular people. And so now you don't get a fair shot at success. You don't get a shot at the American dream. So I think Charles is basically right, and he's kind of alluding to that, but at the end where he says, oh, they're trying to divide us rich versus poor, that part requires a little bit more nuance. Because in a sense, it is rich versus poor, but it's the rich waging class warfare on the poor. But it's not just the rich, full stop. It's a portion of the rich. It's the the corporations and the billionaires and the elites who have rigged the system, who've rigged the system, rigged the rules in their favor against average people. Those are the people who are the problem. And, of course, the way it works is those are the people that Democrats and Republicans, generally speaking, represent. They're representing their donors, the special interests, the lobbyists, the elites, the billionaires, the corporations. That's who they're representing. And so divide and conquer is all they have, man. Now, don't get it twisted. There are differences between the political factions. And I do think that the nuance is important and the nuance matters. There's many differences on social issues. There's even differences on economic issues to an extent. I think the the Overton window and the spectrum of policies that are debatable is pretty narrow, but there is a difference. I just want to be clear. I'm not doing a full false equivalence here and say there's are the same. No, I think that's stupid and sloppy thinking. Um, But unfortunately, the differences aren't nearly profound enough because everybody's representing those elite interests. And yes, those elite interests want nothing more than for the racial tensions to be stoked and for the partisan tribal tensions to be stoked. Because as long as we're fighting each other, as long as you think your fellow American is the problem, you don't realize who the real problem is. And it's the corrupt elite that bought and owned the government and rigged the rules in their favor and against average people. There's a reason that this country does not have a thriving social democracy already. There's a reason we don't have universal health care, universal college, paid vacation time by law, living wages, There's a reason why we have all these wars going on around the world. There's a reason. There's a reason. And uh, Charles Barkley comes very close to hitting the nail on the head here in his diagnosis of the situation. Okay. Next. So Hunter Biden uh, broke his silence. I think he broke his silence. I don't know. Maybe he's done a few interviews before this. I don't really keep up to date on what Hunter Biden is doing every day. But uh, here he is. He just gave an interview. Now, he's going to talk about pretty much everything. He's going to talk about his personal life, his struggles with addiction. He's going to get into the sketchy jobs that he took, uh, his father. So let's take a look, and then I'm going to respond. He would wake up some mornings, I shouldn't even say some mornings because you slept for like 15 minutes at a time, yeah. and be looking for crack and just smoke whatever was there? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I spent more time on my hands and knees picking through rugs, um, smoking anything that re- even remotely resembled crack cocaine. I would probably smoked more Parmesan cheese than anyone <laughs> anyone that you know, I'm sure, Tracy. Because <laughs> <laughs> there'd be crumbs yeah. mixed in. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean... I went one time for 13 days without sleeping and smoking crack and drinking vodka exclusively throughout that entire time. 
Hunter Biden's struggle with his personal demons is a big part of his new book, from an imprint of Simon & Schuster, a Viacom CBS company. The title, Beautiful Things, is a phrase he and his brother shared to remind each other of the good in life. It was the last thing that, uh, last thing he said to me. Was? Beautiful things. And I held his hand, and he took his last breath. Bo's death shook the entire Biden family, but the way Hunter dealt with his grief made headlines when he began dating his brother's widow. After Bo died, you started a romantic relationship with Hallie, his widow. When the news of that broke, how did people look at you? I think people were uh, confused by it, and I understand that. I mean, I really do. To me, it's not something that is difficult to explain because it came out of a, a real overwhelming grief that we both shared. And we were together and trying to do the right thing. And that grief turned into a a hope for a love that maybe could replace what we lost. And it didn't work. It didn't work. I mean, you said you lost clients over this? You lost business over this? Yeah. You had to step down from the World Food Program? Yeah, yeah. Well, I made a lot of decisions that I probably shouldn't have made. Um, there was a lot more compassion and understanding for the people that knew me. But it was a horrible time, too. And then there's this. In 2014, the younger Biden took a job on the board of a Ukrainian energy company, Burisma Holdings, at a time when his father, who was then vice president, had an active role in U.S. policy toward Ukraine. It raised eyebrows at the time. But by the 2020 election, Hunter Biden was the center of a political firestorm. Hunter got thrown out of the military. He was thrown out, dishonorably discharged. That's not true. Or it's cocaine use. And he didn't have a job until you became vice president. What you not a vice president. He made a fortune in Ukraine, in China, in Moscow, that is simply and very not other places. true. Looking back, did you make a mistake taking a spot on that board? No, I don't think I made a mistake in taking a spot on the board. I think I made a mistake in terms of underestimating the... Uh, the way in which it would be used against me. And but you must have seen the optics. Even back then, you must have, no, I mean, how could you not have foreseen that this was going to look bad? Because I really didn't. I'm, I'm, I'm being as honest with you as I possibly can. All I know is that not one investigative body, not one serious journalist has ever accused, has ever come to the conclusion that I did anything wrong or that my father did anything wrong. But the rumors lived on. In October 2020, a New York Post article said that emails purportedly showing shady dealings in Ukraine by Hunter Biden were found on a laptop computer that he supposedly left in a Delaware repair shop in 2019. The details were sketchy at best. And last month, a declassified intelligence report said that before the election, the Russians had launched a smear campaign against Joe Biden and his family. It does not specifically talk about your laptop. Yeah. Was that your laptop? For real, I don't know. I, I know, but you know that's this I really don't know okay. the answer is. That, you don't know yes or no if the laptop I don't have any idea. I have no idea. So it could have been yours. Of course, certainly. It, 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 there could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. It could be that I was hacked. It could be that it was, uh, that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. And no, you didn't drop off a laptop to no. be repaired no. in Delaware? Not that I remember at all. At all. So, we'll see. Oh, there's a lot to say about this. So there's a lot of things we have to kind of separate out and break down here. Um, first, let's start with the early parts of the clip. Um, this is him talking about his personal struggles, issues with addiction. And, you know, it is kind of gross because people on the right are conflating the latter part of that clip with the earlier part of that clip. 
the whole thing. I mean, the fact that he's admitting that I would be on my hands and knees all day trying to find crack rocks in the rug to smoke because I was that addicted, or, you know, he basically went 13 days without sleeping or just getting little winks of sleep, and he was smoking crack and drinking vodka the entire time. Um, that's nothing to attack him over, you know? That's a dude who's severely addicted to something and really needs help. And uh, when I hear that, I think he's actually being remarkably honest about how terrible he was and the dark place he was in. Um, And even the thing about, like, he got with his brother's widow, that definitely is sketchy and eyebrow-raising. And, like, you did what? But he does say there, and I sort of believe him, that the widow and he were both in extreme pain over the exact same thing, losing Bo. And so that ended up coming out of that, where they felt like they could rely on each other, confide in each other, and... So they ended up getting together. He said it didn't really work out. They couldn't fill the bow void in their lives. But, you know, I get why people would judge him over that. But after hearing his description of it, I'm not even going to hold that against him. Because, listen, personal lives are messy. You know, everybody's done something that they look back on and they might cringe a little bit or whatever. Probably nothing to this extent. This is kind of extreme what he did. But even that, whatever the personal life stuff is, just put it aside. Put it aside. Because uh, that's not the heart of the story. And many people on the right are using that as the heart of the story. It's just not the heart of the story. And if you're conflating those things, you're doing yourself no favors. Um, From there, everything he said is complete trash. So he says, oh, I didn't make a mistake taking a spot on the Ukrainian energy board. See, it's stuff like that that just makes everybody roll their eyes and makes everybody sick to their stomach. Because this is the way Washington functions. The way Washington functions is this open, disgusting, pay-to-play corruption and bribery. And Hunter, doesn't matter how many times you say things like, not one serious journalist said I or my father did anything wrong, doesn't matter how many times you say that, it's, you're not going to get past people's common sense here. You don't know anything about energy. You don't know anything about Ukraine, but when your father's in charge of Ukraine policy, you get sent to sit on a board and make hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing Dickie McGee's acts. Who are you kidding, dog? Who are you kidding? They were attempting to pay for access to your father to get favorable treatment. Now, he could say, okay, that's what they were trying to get, but they didn't get it. You know, but they didn't get anything favorable from my father. So didn't work. You could make that argument if you wanted to, but he doesn't. He tries to nip it all in the bud and say, nope, there's nothing even weird going on here. There's nothing even, I didn't even make a mistake sitting on that board. It wasn't corruption. It wasn't bribery. Shut up. Because that is, that is remarkably dishonest. As honest as he was about being on his hands and knees, smoking crack out of the rug, deeply embarrassing and sad thing, he gets equally dishonest when talking about Ukraine. And there's nothing I hate more. There's nothing more abused than when people say like, Debunked conspiracy theory. It's just a way, it's like a catch-all thing that you throw out there to sort of try to swat aside all questions on a given issue. It's already a debunked conspiracy theory. Not one serious journalist said I or my father anything wrong. Well, the journalists in mainstream media are barely journalists. They're paid propagandists for the Democratic Party, so I don't really care what those so-called journalists are saying. And then the laptop thing. See, again, I don't know if that's my laptop. Not to my knowledge. Did I drop one off? I don't think so. I'm being as honored with you as I possibly can. I don't know if it was my laptop. Come on, man. And then trying to hide behind the, 
Russia hacked us and maybe it's Russia. There's zero evidence for that at zero evidence, zero evidence. And the real scandal here, by the way, is that social media censored those things which were real leaks, which were, it was actual, actual newsworthy stuff. But since this stuff nominally could have hurt Biden's campaign for president and helped Trump, social media banned it. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of outlets decided don't run the story or actively try to debunk the story. And it was just a partisan hit job. And that sets a terrible precedent to have social media ban the topic. And, you know, I think Jack came out and apologized for it later on. He was like, that was totally wrong. We shouldn't have done that. But I think Facebook stands by what they did. And all these media outlets trying to cover it up, just like with the WikiLeaks stuff in 2016, where we learned that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party effectively rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders. And the media ran into run cover for Hillary mode and don't let that out there and say it's Julian Assange is a Russian asset and if you run it, you're helping the Russian government or whatever. It's remarkably dishonest and it's gross. And he clearly knows it was his laptop and he's tap dancing around it because he's a bullshitter. So that's the real scandal. For fuck's sake, guys, get with it. Wake up. The real scandal here, I don't care about the crack thing. I don't care about the personal life stuff. That's totally separate, you know, What I care about is the pay-to-play corruption, the bribery, the fact that that is a big deal, that sort of soft corruption that's just allowed in Washington. We make hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to do dick so that the Ukrainian government can, you know, buy influence and favor with my vice president dad. That's the problem. That's the problem. The problem is the corruption. The problem is the, the media covering up genuine leaks because they want Biden over Trump. I mean, that's the real problem. And that was your fucking laptop, you goddamn liar. So uh, there's a lot to say here, man. There's a lot to say here. I give him a full pass on all the personal stuff. I, you know, I don't even think anybody should really be talking about that. It's like when the pictures were leaked, you know, there were pictures on the laptop of him shirtless and shit. There's allegedly, there was some sort of sex tape that came out and I have no idea if that's legit or not. Although I think it probably is legit. Um, I don't care about any of that stuff. And a bunch of idiots on the right tried to make that front and center. I don't don't care about Hunter Biden's private life. Why should anybody? What the fuck does that have to do with Joe Biden as president? It's got nothing to do with him. The thing that matters is the pay-to-play corruption and the bribery. Keep your eye on the ball if you're going to talk about this because it's important. It's important. And it separates serious people from unserious partisan hacks. And, yes, that was your laptop and... It's a scandal that the media tried to cover it up because they didn't like the potential political consequences from it. Okay. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, Donald Trump scammed his supporters. Incredible story. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
Alright guys, let's keep it going. Still got a lot of stuff to get to and not that much time because your dog's got to get the vaccine today. Okay, here we go. President Trump uh, was caught red-handed here scamming his supporters. And not only that, but scamming his closest supporters. So the New York Times reports on the following. Let me read this to you. This is kind of heartbreaking. Stacey Blatt was in hospice care last September listening to Rush Limbaugh's dire warning about how badly Donald J. Trump's campaign needed money when he went online and chipped in everything he could, $500. It was a big sum for a 63-year-old battling cancer and living in Kansas City on less than $1,000 per month. But that single contribution, federal records show it was his first ever, quickly multiplied. Another $500 was withdrawn the next day, then $500 the next week, and every week through mid-October, without his knowledge, until Mr. Blatt's bank account had been depleted and frozen. When his utility and rent payments bounced, he called his brother, Russell, for help. What the Blatt soon discovered was $3,000 in withdrawals by the Trump campaign in less than 30 days. They called their bank and said they thought they were victims of fraud. It felt, Russell said, like it was a scam. Come to find out, what happened was this. The Trump people, um, because they were falling behind in the money race, they weren't doing nearly as well in the money race with Biden. What they did is they put the default settings on the website to weekly recurring payments. Weekly recurring payments. So when people thought they're doing, like he thought he was doing a one-time donation of $500, but he needed to click out of the recurring payment thing. And it wasn't even recurring monthly. It was recurring weekly. So the guy lost all of his money donating to the Trump campaign and didn't even realize it until it was too late. They set the default option to weekly recurring payments to try to fleece their people to catch up in the money race. It doesn't get any darker than that. I mean, this reminds me of when he did the fundraising for the Stop the Steal thing. He was aggressively sending out emails nonstop, aggressively fundraising for the Stop the Steal fight. Like, oh, we need to make sure we have, you know, enough money in the bank, a war chest to fight back against the rigged election. And we need money for the lawsuits and we need money for this and we need money for that. And uh, if you read the fine print, Basically, what it said is you have to give, I forget the exact number, so don't hold me to this, but it was something like over $5,000, the money that's over 5K, that money goes towards whatever election stuff, but up to 5K, it just goes towards paying off the campaign debt that they had. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe some of it went into the Trump family's pocket, pockets, plural. Who knows? Who knows? Does this sound like it's, uh, you know, making America great again or draining the swamp? Is that what this is? No, this is classic Trump. People don't know, a lot of people don't know the backstory of Trump when he was coming up, but there were, there was reporting on this during the 2016 campaign, to be fair, and it may have even been in 2015 during the Republican primary. You had a, a list of who's who of every plumber and electrician and whatever construction people that he ever worked with. Person after person after person would say, 
he stiffed me when I went to go get my payment. I did a whole hotel for him, or I did a whole golf course for him, and did the whole ballroom, and it cost X amount of money, and he stiffed me. He didn't pay me anything. He didn't pay me anything. This is a guy whose businesses went bankrupt six times. He's on the record basically saying, well, fuck the workers. I'm like, i got to get out with as much as I possibly can. This is the kind of guy that we're talking about. This is the kind of guy that we're talking about. I mean, this is dark, man. And I actually feel, I feel, I actually feel really bad for his most ardent supporters and believers because this, that's what this guy was. This guy loved him so much, he listened to a Rush Limbaugh segment and was like, I need to save Trump, so I'm going to give him $500 even though I have next to nothing in the bank. And this guy got had. I don't agree with anybody on the left who would, you know, almost say like, ha-ha, that's what you get for supporting the con man. No. I just think this guy's a victim. And I think Donald Trump is one of the most successful con men of all time, if I'm being honest with you. I mean, the guy basically bullshit his way into the White House. That's no easy feat. That takes a very particular skill set that he has, you know. So I just feel bad for this guy. I'm, I'm not... I'm not judging negatively. I mean, obviously, I hate his politics, but I'm not judging negatively. I'm not wagging my finger, and I'm not taking joy in the fact that this guy just got hosed. But I just feel bad. I just feel bad. And I bet so many people had the exact same experience, and they just didn't know where to go, who to talk to, how to get the money back. It's just, it's just heartbreaking, man. It's just heartbreaking. Remember, guys, he's just like all the other politicians. If anything, he's worse. All right, next. This story makes me happy and sad at the exact same time. This story that you're about to see makes me both incredibly happy and incredibly sad at the exact same time. This is the independent reporting. They say, changes to minimum wage and tax policy came into force in New Zealand today. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's had promised to raise the minimum wage to $20 per hour and to raise taxes on the wealthiest Kiwis. The rise in wages means that the income of 175,500 New Zealanders will be increased by $44 each week. Quote, today's rise to $20 per hour is estimated to boost wages across the economy by $216 million, giving New Zealanders more money to spend at local business. Minister for Workplace Relations and Safety Michael Wood said, There are many Kiwis who earn the minimum wage who have gone above and beyond in our fight against COVID. I think everyone agrees those who served us so well during lockdown, including supermarket workers, cleaners, and security guards, deserve a pay raise, the minister added. The new changes also impact the top 2% of earners in New Zealand, those on salaries over $180,000, who will now be taxed by 39%. So, it was 33%. And now they raised the top rate to 39%. And uh, I'll give you some more information here because that's not the end of the positive, amazing new policies they implemented. Benefit rates have been risen now by 3.1%. Student allowances have been upped. And the necessary deposit for first-time homebuyers has been reduced from 20% of the total cost of the property to just 5%. 
And uh, Prime Minister Ardern took a 20% pay reduction in April of 2020 in solidarity with those who would be struggling financially as a result of the economic effects of the pandemic. $20 minimum wage, benefits increased 3.1%, taxes on the wealthy raised from 33% to 39%. Did it all, did it casually, straightforward, and she said as she did it, I promised this on the campaign trail, so now I'm delivering on it. What? (laughs) It's so hard to wrap your mind around that because virtually every single thing Joe Biden said, he's gone back on. $15 minimum wage, they left it out and they blamed the parliamentarian who has zero power. Um, Public option, he ran on the public option. Totally took that off the table. I don't think he said the words public option since he's become president. And now all they want to do is expand the Affordable Care Act and subsidize COBRA and subsidize the health insurance companies to expand the Affordable Care Act. I mean, you name it. He proposed $7 trillion in infrastructure spending on the campaign trail. Now his actual proposal is $2.25 trillion, more than cut it in half. You literally, in the United States, they have baked into the cake of the process that you lie when you campaign and you're worse when you're elected. The whole idea, they call it a pivot. I did a general election pivot. And then once I got elected when I was in office, I pivoted again. So in other words, what they're saying is, I lied to you twice already. That's what I did. And I'm going to pretend I'm some sort of hero after lying to you twice and totally changing my position. So in the primary, you say, you know, just to give rough examples here, we're going to do $10 trillion on infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Then in the general, you say, we're going to do $7 trillion on infrastructure because we need to be more centrist now because we're in a general election. We've got to be more centrist. Can't be extreme lefties. And then after you get elected, we're going to do $2.25 trillion in infrastructure. Because $7 trillion, while it was the general election position, well, now I'm actually in power, and I can actually do something. So now I'm just going to say, well, I've got to work with the right and the stuff, and the things was in my eyes, and me and Craig was by the Safeway. So what I did was what happened was we drafted somehow $2.25 trillion is the best we could do. And that's what they do. And to be fair, it's not just Biden. It's virtually every mainstream politician. This is what they do. They say one thing. In the primary, then it's another thing in the general, then it's another thing when they're in power. And I I swear to you, they think they're geniuses when they do this. They think it's brilliant. They're like, I got it. I'll pivot. Because that's what they've been told by every single idiot corporate strategist in their adult lives. They've been told this is the conventional wisdom. This is just the way it works. You know who really represents the game changer position? People who are not willing to just go along to get along with the conventional wisdom. People who don't just listen to the corporate staffers. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They have no idea. Biden barely won an election against Donald Trump, and Donald Trump oversaw a pandemic and an economic collapse. You don't trust these idiots? Don't listen to a word they say. It turns out real people like real people. So when Jacinda Ardern says, I'm going to raise it to $20 an hour when she's running for office, and she gets into power and she raises it $20 an hour. People are going to go, hmm, well, that was fucking awesome. I sure do like that. Higher wages for regular people seems like a swell thing. See, this is what I'm saying. A lot of people in the U.S. don't get it. They don't understand. We just think, if you're new to politics, you probably just think like, well, this is how it works. You have an election, and the election is relatively close, and either the Republican squeaks it out or the Democrat squeaks it out, and then we move forward. Because, you know, what you do is you look back, you can go back to, like, the year 2000, 21 years ago. Look at all the general presidential elections since then. 
everyone's relatively close, right? I mean, sure, you could have some, you know, Mitt Romney versus Obama. Obama got over 300 electoral votes. Um, but it, it's usually just over 300 electoral votes, right? And it, it could be like Bush versus Gore, which was razor thin. Or it could be, you know, Trump versus Hillary. Trump got just over 300 electoral votes, even though Hillary won the popular vote by millions. Biden, same thing. He got just over 300 electoral votes. Relatively close, right? You look around and you're like, okay, there's a lot of blue on that map. There's a lot of red on that map. What are you going to do? You don't understand what's possible if you actually fight for the people and deliver on your promises. You want to see what's possible? Go look at some of FDR's election maps. That's what's possible if you actually fight for the people. I mean, there, and to be fair, it's not just FDR. There's been, like, Ronald Reagan won in some fucking landslides, too. Okay? So it's possible to have an election where you win, like, 45 out of 50 states. But people don't think that's possible because they don't think big anymore because we're so used to politicians lying to us, and politicians think it's brilliant when they lie to you in service of a pivot. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. So it is refreshing as fuck to see Jacinda Ardern follow through on her campaign promises. And by the way, listen, I don't know nearly enough about New Zealand politics, so I can't comment too much on this. But my guess is, if you go look at the way that, you know, their system is run, and they don't have complete and utter billionaire control of the system, corporate control of the system, special interests and lobbyists controlling every single move. They don't have that. So when you don't have that, it turns out in a representative democracy, the politicians are more representative of the democratic will of the people. I know, crazy, insane, right? I mean, the, our system is so broken. You've got to get the corporate money out of the system. You've got to get the corruption out of the system. you really got to do a direct ballot initiative law at the federal level so people vote directly on the most important issues. It would be amazing in this country. If tomorrow we in this country could vote on whether or not to have Medicare for all, universal health care, whether or not to legalize marijuana, whether or not to have $15 minimum wage, whether or not to end the wars. If we could vote on that tomorrow, the correct position would win on every single one of those things. So the problem is not the people. The people are there. The people are where they need to be. Most of them are where they need to be. The problem is the politicians who are corrupt, who are bought and owned, who are paid liars, and who would never be as straightforward and as correct as Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand with what she did here. The only criticism I could see of her, which would be legit, is what took you so long? That's all. That's all. That's the only thing. She'd been in office for a while. What took you so long? That's the only thing I could say. I could see. But honestly, given how low the bar is here in the U.S., I'll fucking take it. <laughs> I don't care when you do it. Just fucking do it. And she did it. She did it. She did unequivocally. I, I can't tell you the last time I looked at a bill in the U.S. and was like, I have zero criticisms of this. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever done that. Maybe I have. I don't know. But it's, if I have, it's not popping in my mind right now. I've never looked at a politician do something in the U.S. and say, that, that's it right there. This bill is correct. I, everything about it. No criticism. New Zealand, embrace it. Bathe in it. Enjoy it. Because it ain't nothing like what we got going on here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, so John Boehner is back in the news. I guess he has a book that was just released. John Boehner, of course, was Speaker of the House during the uh, Obama presidency. There was a lot of tension between him and Obama, and John Boehner also had to deal with the Tea Partiers, who kind of hated his guts just as much as they hated Obama, Obama's guts, or a similar amount. So look at this. This is kind of amazing what Boehner is saying now. The Hill reports, former Speaker John Boehner said he understands why former President Obama might not have been inclined to work on bipartisan deals with Republicans during his eight years in the Oval Office, asking, how do you find common cause with people who think you are a secret Kenyan Muslim traitor? In January 2011, as the new Republican House majority was settling in, and I was just getting, and I was getting adjusted to the speakership, I was asked about the birth certificate business by Brian Williams of NBC News. My answer was simple. The state of Hawaii has said that President Obama was born there. That's good enough for me, Boehner wrote in an essay adapted from his book that was published Friday by Politico magazine. The former speaker called his assertion at the time a simple statement of fact, but quipped, you would have thought I called Ronald Reagan a communist. I got all kinds of shit for it, emails, letters, phone calls. It went on for a couple weeks. I knew we would hear from some of the crazies, but I was surprised at just how many there really were. Boehner said in the essay. All of this crap swirling around was going to make it tough for me to cut any deals with Obama as the new House Speaker. Of course, it has to be said that Obama didn't help himself much either. Um, So he went on to say, quote, Ronald Reagan used to say something to the effect that if I get 80 or 90 percent of what I want, that's a win, he wrote. These guys wanted 100 percent every time. In fact, I don't think That would satisfy them because they didn't really want legislative victories. They wanted wedge issues and conspiracies and crusades. He's talking about the Tea Party there. Um, All right, there's a lot to say about this. When the Tea Party came in in that wave in 2010, um, they were incredibly aggressive. And their whole thing, it's funny because you got a whole bunch of different issues that they claimed defined their movement. Um, but a lot of them would talk about the deficit or would talk about taxes. or. But the main thing was like opposition to Obama and opposition to the establishment. And they think that the Republican establishment had sold them out to the Democrats. Now, that's totally a misdiagnosis of the problems. But, and Noam Chomsky's made this point a number of times, the, the grassroots support for the Tea Party, and there was some, a lot of it was AstroTurf, as has been covered extensively, but the people who were voting for these sort of seemingly extremist options, that did stem from a real pain and hurt that wasn't being addressed. Because we had the subprime mortgage crisis, we had the Great Recession, and it wasn't, you know, bailing out Wall Street and doing um, the stimulus bill, which was less than a trillion dollars. Um, these are not things that are like the New Deal in response to the Great Depression. They're much they're half measures more, and they're, it's corrupt to bail out Wall Street and not bail out the people when there's a housing crisis. So there was real pain that led to the rise of an anti-establishment right-wing faction. Okay? Now, having said that, the politicians who got elected to represent that more grassroots movement, they're just insane. And so, yes, Boehner's right. They, all they really cared about was more social, cultural, partisan, tribal issues. And so they would say Obama's a Kenyan Muslim communist traitor, and he can't trust him, and the birth certificate is fake, and this and that. And the fact that Boehner didn't agree with that stuff drove them absolutely crazy. And so Boehner's correct when he says 
yeah, if you get 80 or 90% of what you want in a bill and they're mad that you didn't get 100%, they're just a bunch of, you know, bunch of babbling idiots. And he's right, because I got news for you. Did the Republicans get 80% or 90% of what they wanted under Obama? You bet your ass they did. You bet your ass they did. Of course, Obama didn't do real left-wing legislation. His fucking health care plan, which is his primary accomplishment, came from the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing think tank. And by the way, no Republicans voted for it. So he did their idea, and then they were like, well, we're against our own ideas now. So listen, Boehner's right. He was dealing with a rabid gaggle of idiots, and he didn't know how to deal with them. And so he ended up leaving government as a result of it. But it's fascinating to hear him say now that he's not in power, like, yeah, I don't know how Obama was supposed to work with them when they were calling him a Kenyan Muslim Marxist traitor or whatever. And here's the thing, though, that he's wrong about. Obama did work with them. He tried everything to work with them. He did everything in his power. He, he reached out to them time after time after time after time, and they repeatedly spit in his eye. You repeatedly spit in his eye. So he did try to do it. And he says, oh, Obama did himself no favors. What are you talking about? He goes on to say, oh, because he would do these professorial lectures. He's reaching out to you on a daily basis, and the reason that you're saying he did himself no favors was because of his style? I, come on, come on, son. Come on, dog. So, but really, the issue is Obama shouldn't have reached out to them, and he should have been more like FDR. We had a Democratic supermajority at one point, and he didn't do nearly enough with it. He, didn't do, he could have gotten us a public option. He could have gotten us Medicare for all. He could have done a number of things. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. And so there's a lot of blame to go around here, but it's interesting that Boehner now, in retrospect, looks back, and he's, honestly, it sounds to me like he's more pissed at the Tea Party than he was at, at Obama, because he got more shit. He expects shit from the Democrats. But he didn't expect shit from his own party. And I'm actually somewhat sympathetic with him on that because, and here's the reason why. John Boehner's voting record is exactly like any of those Tea Party idiots, but still the Tea Party idiots position themselves as equally against Boehner and Obama. That makes no sense because Boehner actually agrees with you on the policies and he's implementing the policies that you say you want. He's fighting for the policies that you say you want. So why are you against them? And it does, I think, come down to more cultural shit that a lot of it was like, you're not saying Obama's a Kenyan Muslim Marxist traitor, and so therefore you're my enemy too. And you represent the, Demo- the Republican establishment, and we're going to pretend like you've sold out to Democratic positions, and so we're going to attack you too. It just it made no sense. And I think Boehner was more irked at the fact that you got these up-and-comers who are treating him like he's an enemy when his voting record is exactly like theirs. So in some ways I'm sympathetic, but in other ways it's like, you reap what you sow, son. Like, you've made your bed, and now you've got to sleep in it. They, he was one of the – him, Mitch McConnell, these were Republicans who, for a long time, really helped create that monster. And then that monster comes up, and they're even more extreme, and they're like, well, well who created this monster? Well, you're, you're partially responsible for it. So it, it is interesting that he's now being a little more honest about it, but – it's always after the fact, right? It's never when he's actually in office. When he's in office, he tried to walk that fine line in between and appease everybody and got nothing for it. Okay, next. 
Got to keep my eye on the clock, y'all, because it's happening soon, the vaccine. Happening soon with the vaccine, bitch. I'll give you guys an update about how I feel and everything. New York has officially legalized marijuana. Um, I want to go ahead and give you guys the specifics of the deal and of the bill uh, so you know what to expect if you happen to live in New York. I know a lot of my listeners are from New York. I think Texas and California actually are ahead of New York on the list of secular talk listening states, but there's plenty in New York, so let me break this down for you. This is from Business Insider. They say, immediately, New Yorkers can now smoke marijuana outside in the same places where cigarette smoking is allowed. Immediately, New Yorkers will be allowed to possess up to three ounces of cannabis. Immediately, marijuana offenses from nonviolent convictions will begin to be expunged from criminal records. I love that. Soon, a new regulatory body will be chosen to oversee cannabis in New York. Soon, New York's medical program will expand. Soon, New York adults will be allowed to grow cannabis plants at home. By the end of 2021, localities can opt out of allowing cannabis businesses, but not legalization. That I'm actually against. I think they should be allowed to build a business wherever they want. But again, I mean, zoning is a thing, so they're just zoning a little more strictly. Sometime in 2022, um, you can go to a store to buy a gummy or pre-roll. Sometime in 2022, New Yorkers will be allowed to partake in cannabis at consumption lounges and have weed delivered to their homes. So guys, listen, Uh, This is awesome, and um, I think it needs to be said now, with California and New York now both legalizing weed, it's only a matter of time until it's legal at the federal level. You can't lose California. You can't lose New York. They're economic powerhouses. There's millions and millions of people in both those states. They're just tremendous states. Um, If you lose California and New York, and they've legalized weed, it's tick-tock at the federal level. And I've never been more certain of that than now. I think there's 15 states that have now legalized um, recreational weed. It's only a matter of time. And, you know, Biden knew what was good for him and knew what was right. He would take it off the Schedule One substances list right now. Right now. And that alone would make his presidency so much more worth it and so much more popular. People would love it. You know, the polls are overwhelming. It's over 60% of the country that wants to legalize it. And that number is only going in one direction, dog. It's only going in one direction. So, I mean, it's just phenomenal. You also have tremendous economic upsides, tremendous economic upsides from this. So you're going to have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of jobs created in this industry. Some people are speculating that's the whole purpose because during COVID you have the downturn and, you know, you want to, find a way to ameliorate the economic woes and ills out there. Um, that could be part of it, but honestly, I think the real, the real reason is that Cuomo was open to this deal because he's trying to uh, make up for his 817 scandals. So from killing grandma and grandpa by allowing COVID-positive people back into nursing homes or the whole, a whole bunch of women came out and said, yeah, he was sexual harasser and what have you. And so I think he's just trying to distract from all the scandals. And what's the best thing to do to distract from all the scandals? Do something good. Do something that's going to be overwhelmingly popular. Ah, see, I did this thing that everybody likes, so get off my ass about the other stuff, huh? Huh? So I think that's one of the main reasons why it's happening. Um, but this is great. This is a great 
great day for liberty, great day for freedom. I honestly didn't think New York was going to legalize it for a while. And the reason is I had read stories previously, and I think I covered them on the show, about how New York, there's a lot of New York lawmakers take money from the alcohol lobby. A lot of people don't know this, but New York, did you know that for a long time, still might be the case, you can't buy wine at the grocery store? I was like, what? Yes, the way the laws worked, wine needed to be purchased at a wine store. And I think that that was because the alcohol lobby paid the politicians and the politicians protected that business, the business of separate wine stores. And so I remember when I was a kid, my mom wanted wine. You know, you go to the grocery store and get your groceries, and then it's like you can't get wine there. You've got to go to, the, go to the wine store, separate. And so the alcohol lobby really had a stranglehold on New York politicians. And so I didn't think it was going to come for a while, but apparently we've gotten to the point now where they're going to legalize marijuana. They have legalized marijuana. And that makes me really happy, man. Now, I am not, everybody knows I'm not a big fan of marijuana. I'm not, it's true. Um, I get paranoid most of the time. I've had it in my life. I've gotten paranoid. Um, probably 60% of the times I smoked, I feel like I was paranoid. 40, 40% was an enjoyable experience. Um, but I have tried CBD, and I kind of like that. I have tried CBD with a little bit of THC, and it put me to sleep. It was lovely. I liked it. So maybe I will try. You know, what Rogan told me when I did the podcast, one of my podcasts with him is he said, my problem was I probably just had way too much. He says all you need, especially if you're not really a big smoker, is take one hit or two hits. That's it. That's it. And so maybe that is the way. Maybe I'll, I'll get some weed, take one hit or two hits, see how it makes me feel. And uh, maybe your boy will get into that. We'll see. But great day for freedom, great day for liberty, great day for justice, expunging the records of the nonviolent uh, drug offenders. We need to do this at the federal level. It is so necessary. It is so worth it. It has amazing upsides for personal freedom and amazing upsides for criminal justice and the economy. I see nothing but positives here, man. Just legalize tax and regulate it, and everybody's happy. Okay, next. So I hate to rain on everybody's parade, but I have to do it a little bit here. We have um, a medical expert. Uh, an infectious disease virus expert here who went on CNN, um, Dr. Osterholm, I think his name is. He, he's been great. He went on Joe Rogan's show early on in the COVID pandemic and accurately predicted a lot of stuff. Uh, so here he is on CNN talking about the current state of the pandemic, and it's not so hot. So how do you explain the surge? Is it just that people are exhausted and they've been relaxed and they can go back out? We're seeing some ballparks start to fill up again in Texas. For example, restaurants are open. People are getting back to normal life after a year of this. And because I think a lot of that good news that you mentioned gives them hope and optimism that they can return safely to some, something resembling normal life anyway. So why are we seeing those spikes and why are you expecting more of them? Well, I think, first of all, you've really detailed it quite nicely in terms of this roller coaster emotionally. Uh, you know, just uh, four weeks ago on this show, everyone wanted to know why I was more optimistic. Cases were coming down, uh, and I understand that. One of the things I don't think people realize, as much as public health measures surely have impacted on the number of new cases, think about this. Last April, we had a house on fire in New York. Uh, some states are in the uh, Midwest 
and uh, we were at 32,000 cases a day, and oh my, the house was on fire. Then we saw in the Memorial Day time period, the Upper Midwest uh, lit up again, about the same number of cases, came back down. July, the southern states lit up. We had 72,000 cases a day. That went back down. Then post-Labor Day, cases went up in the Midwest again. By November, we were at 200,000 cases. Then cases came back down again. And finally, uh, in December, January, we hit uh, over 300,000 cases a day, and the South lit up again. So we've had these roving regional increases up and down, up and down, up and down. And I think we're in that right now, except this time we have a much more dangerous virus. This B117 virus is at least 70 to 100% more infectious, and it's at least 50 to 60% more likely to cause severe disease. And the other issue that really is a major challenge is spreading readily in young kids, which we hadn't seen in the COVID viruses prior to B117. So this is a new problem, and it's a bad problem. The issue is uh, the new variants are more contagious and infectious, and uh, they're more likely to give you severe illness. So that's a problem. And, you know, there's an argument to be made that the reason why we've had all these new variants is because we really didn't lock down longer. Um, we would have potentially avoided new variants if everybody was locked down longer. But having said that, I get it. It's not, that's not an easy thing to do, to tell human beings or social animals, like, just stay home and do nothing. And I know you already did that for a really long time, but do it for even longer. I know it's easier said than done. And, you know, I myself sort of lean a little bit more in favor of just do social distancing everywhere, wear masks everywhere, and that's the better approach because you still, I think people do want to feel some semblance of normal life um, so it would, it would be really difficult to try to shut everything down again. I, I do think people, particularly in the U.S., would feel like, fuck this, you know. Um, but, you know, you heard him. Now, he goes on to say, to be fair, that if for like 10 weeks everybody masked up, everybody socially distanced, we actually would weather the storm pretty well, the spike would ameliorate, and we would have a relatively normal summer because vaccination rates are, are increasing. Um, but, I mean, that's a lot to say, continue socially distancing, continue wearing masks, because that's not what people are doing. Everything's opening up, and people are sort of acting like the pandemic's done because, you know, we have the vaccine now, which is great, but everybody's already acting like it's already done. It's not. We've vaccinated like 25% of the country or so. Um, so, for the love of God, guys, just hang on out there. And I'll tell you guys, for sure, anytime you're going to be inside somewhere in public, Wear, wear your mask. Got to wear it, got to wear it, got to wear it. Just wear your mask if you're in public. That's it. If you're outside, you don't necessarily have to, but definitely socially distance as much as possible. Wear your mask as much as possible. Get vaccinated as soon as possible. And then eventually, you know, we'll have this behind us. But I sort of agree with him that there, we're in the middle of another spike now, and I think it's going to continue to go up for a little bit, even though the vaccines are rolling out at a decent pace now and, um, you know, eventually we'll vaccinate a tremendous percentage of the population. So just a little warning, a little caution. This is a, one of the experts who is right about a lot of stuff saying, hey, man, red flag, be careful. This thing is not over. You can't act like it's over. Still wear your mask, still, still socially distance. We're in the middle of another spike now. Get vaccinated. Um, just hang in there. Hang in there. Still continue to take it seriously because we're not done yet. Okay, next. 
The idiots over on Fox News um, decided to critique Biden's tax plan. You have the most pompous man in the country, Stuart Varney, talking to the most wrong man in the country, Larry Kudlow. Let's see what they have to say. They say, Democrats are saying, well, we need higher taxes to finance whatever, $3 trillion infrastructure bill and so forth. Well, the infrastructure bill is going to be less about infrastructure than it is going to be about the Green New Deal to abolish fossil fuel energies, which would be a calamity. Second, it's an excuse to tax the rich. We're talking here class warfare, not growth. The left, left, left of the progressive movement doesn't care whit about economic growth. They just have an ideology of redistribution of income, go after tax cuts. It's right after uh, Karl Marx, Das Kapital. Yes. I was there when he finished that book in 1867. <laughs> I told him not to do it, that his numbers were no good, and he ignored me completely, and it's probably become the world's greatest uh, seller certainly among left-wing people. But in all seriousness, who would raise taxes $3 trillion? Who would make us less competitive in the name of taxing the rich? All this is, is uh, you know, some socialist ideology yes. has failed wherever it's been put into place. It's, and I think it can be stopped. I think you're going to find Democrats in the House and Senate who really don't like this. I hope so. They don't care if the poor get poorer, so long as the rich get poorer, too. Right. Margaret Thatcher. Right. Well, dead right, dead right. They yes. just hate the rich. That's what yes. it's all about. Larry, I'm out of time. You know what? Go on. Go on. Even socialists run out of other people's money. Remember that? <laughs> That's a good question. Even yes. socialists <laughs> run out of other people's money. I love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's continue to have a political conversation in bumper stickers. These guys think they're intelligent, and their understanding of politics is like bumper sticker right-wing Ayn Rand shit. I mean, eventually socialists run out of other people's money. (laughs) You get it? They're going to tax the rich so much until the rich have nothing left, and then who are you going to tax after the rich have nothing left? What happens when Jeff Bezos runs out of money because we made the tax rate too high? Poor Jeff Bezos. He's such a victim. He's such a victim. Leave him alone to force workers to shit in a bag. These guys are such a joke. By the way, I love how the the quote, the Margaret Thatcher quote, they don't care if the poor get poorer so long as the rich get poorer too. But 20 seconds earlier, you said all they want to do is redistribute money to the poor. That's all they want to do. So which is it? Do they want to redistribute money to the poor, therefore making the poor wealthier? Or is it they don't care if the poor get poorer so long as the rich get poorer too? Which is it? Because on the one hand, you're saying this is going to make poor people poorer. And on the other hand, you're admitting, yeah, they're going to redistribute and it's going to make the poor people wealthier. Which is it? Which is it? They don't know and they don't care because it's not about making sense or logic or reason. It's about how do we own the libs and, okay, and be incredibly hyperbolic as well. So let's go through some of this. Uh, Stuart Varney says, or not Stuart Varney, what's his face? Larry Kudlow, who's been wrong about everything in his life, by the way. Uh, I don't even think that's an exaggeration. This is a guy who said right before the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession that there's not going to be a crash. This is a guy who said at the beginning of our COVID crisis, we have it contained. 
He's just wrong about everything. The guy has never been right about fucking anything. He says, well, this bill's not about infrastructure. It's about the Green New Deal. Biden is against the Green New Deal, and he's made that incredibly clear. Now, I wish he was for it. He's not for it. He's against it. And by the way, any infrastructure bill, yes, is going to involve investment and jobs created around green and renewable technology. Because that's what you do when you upgrade infrastructure. Of course. Duh. He, may, he thinks that's some sort of gotcha. And by the way, it is about infrastructure. Of course it's about infrastructure. Then he goes on to say, well, this is really about taxing the rich. Good. Good. The problem is it's not about taxing the rich enough. Because what does Biden propose? Take the corporate tax rate, which was 35% in 2016. And then in 2017, Trump cut it to 21%. You know what Biden says? Raise it to 28. So he's not even for making it 35, which is what it was before. If he still effectively wants to net do a corporate tax cut since 2016. I mean, that's, he's basically a moderate Republican, but what does this idiot say? He's like Karl Marx. Was Karl Marx a moderate Republican? Because <laughs> that's what Joe Biden is. And the other thing is, oh, it's all about taxing the rich. How much does he want to tax the rich, numbnuts? Like, let's talk about the specific plans. How about that? What does he want to do? Raise the corporate tax rate to 28%, which is less than what it was in, in 2016. And he wants to raise the top marginal rate to 39%. That's exactly what it was under Obama. I think that's exactly what it was under Clinton. Under Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, the top marginal rate was 93%. 93%. You're flipping out over 39 and acting like this is some sort of insane class warfare. What a joke. What a joke. Um, then he says, well, this is really go after tax cuts and to redistribute wealth. Again, good. Go after that Trump tax cut law because 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. It was just a giveaway to the wealthy. So you're the one who really wants to redistribute Larry Kudlow and Stuart Varney, but you want to redistribute from the poor and give it to the rich. You want to give them net subsidies, you want to give them giant tax cuts, and you want to leave working people hanging. I want to cut taxes for working people and give them more goods and services and a social safety net. You don't want that. You want to raise taxes on them, just like Ronald Reagan. When Ronald Reagan cut taxes, it was for the wealthy. He raised taxes on, the, on working people. This is a great segment Tom Hartman had on this about uh, you know two or three weeks ago. So... When they talk about tax cuts, they're not talking about you. Yes, I want to redistribute. You want, want to know why I want to redistribute? Because, you know, you have some people out there with $50 billion. How much does Jeff Bezos have? Does he have $100 billion or more than that? So at the same time you have that, you have 78% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. Jeff Bezos makes like $30,000 per second. And I'm supposed to protect his ass and screw the workers? No. I'm flat out in favor of some redistribution of wealth. It's the only way you can create a system that makes sense is to have some redistribution of wealth. Because guess what? If you have totally unfettered, laissez-faire, free market capitalism, what happens is 0.01% of the population has fucking everything and owns everything, and everybody else is effectively an indentured servant, that's it. And you make next to nothing, and you can barely survive, and you live in tenement housing, and you got child labor. So fuck out of here with this insane religious worship of capitalism. And finally, of course, the best part is he says, this is just like Karl Marx. This is socialist ideology, and this is unacceptable. 
If you think Joe Biden is like Karl Marx, if you think Joe Biden is like Karl Marx, your brain is broken. You are one of the dumbest people on the planet. Joe Biden, his entire career, has been a moderate Republican. Joe Biden supported the Iraq War. Joe Biden supported the Patriot Act. Joe Biden, at some point, he supported balanced budget amendment and to reduce the debt and the deficit, which is a right-wing trope and ideology, which is just a Trojan horse to cut the social safety net program. This is a guy who wanted to make a grand bargain about cutting Social Security and cutting Medicare. That's who Joe Biden is. Joe Biden is proposing the tiniest ever tax increases on the top, uh, the top earners in the country. He's proposing the tiniest ever corporate tax increase. And they're literally saying he's like Karl Marx. There is no negotiating or reasoning with these morons because they're ideologues, they're full of shit, they're insane, and their ideas for the country are abysmal and apocalyptic and disastrous. And I know that because Larry Kudlow has been whispering in the ears of presidents since Ronald Reagan. His policies were a disaster under Reagan. They were a disaster under George W. Bush, subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. He wants to deregulate everything in sight and cut taxes for the wealthy. Did it under Trump. Complete and utter disaster. Wealth and income inequality skyrocketing. And now he has the nerve to pretend Joe Biden is like Karl Marx. You're not even close to making sense. It's embarrassing and it's shameful. The fact that this guy ever had any power when he's been wrong about everything is a true indictment on the system. Okay. All right, let me, I got to speed up because I got to get the vaccine soon, y'all. I got to speed up. I got to do two stories in record time. Here we go. All right, so got an update on the Iran situation right now. The Associated Press says the following. The United States and Iran said Friday they will begin indirect negotiations with intermediaries next week to try to get both countries back into compliance with an accord limiting Iran's nuclear program nearly three years after President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the deal. The announcement marks one of the first bits of tangible progress in efforts to return both nations to to the terms of the 2015 accord, which bound Iran to restrictions in return for relief from U.S. and international sanctions. President Joe Biden came into office saying that the that getting back into the accord and getting Iran's nuclear program back under international restrictions was a priority. But Iran and the United States have disagreed over Iran's demands that sanctions be lifted first. And that deadlock has threatened to become an, an early foreign policy setback for the new U.S. president. Administration officials played down expectations for next week's talks. State Department spokesperson Ned Price called the resumption of negotiations scheduled for Tuesday in Vienna a healthy step forward, but Price added, These remain early days, and we don't anticipate immediate breakthrough as there will be difficult discussions ahead. So we're not directly doing Iran talks. We're doing step removed, let's have our friends talk to them type talks. I mean, this is so goofy. This is so goofy. Listen, Donald Trump pulled out of the Iran deal. We broke the Iran deal. We pulled out of the Iran deal. They continued complying even after that for the international community. And it was only much later on, after we already violated the deal multiple times and pulled out of it, they were like, okay, guess we're going to go ahead and start developing our weapons more. And the second that they did that, U.S. media and U.S. politicians were like, oh, my God, this is an aggressive act. This is an offensive act. We're in danger. When, again, we violated the deal, we put more sanctions on them, and we pulled out of the deal. So Biden ran on, I'm going to get back into it. Then he gets in office, he's like, eh, psych, I'm not going to do that. You do understand, this is the biggest 
botched job of all time. All Biden had to do was get in there and say, I'm now returning us to the Iran deal. Lift the sanctions, and then Iran would have went right back to what it was doing before. Because you don't get to demand a gesture of goodwill when you were the one who violated it. This country violated it. That, that's a fact. It's not an opinion. That's a fact. So you don't get to say to the world, an agreement with me is not worth the fucking paper it's written on. And then now you're making more demands from somebody else. Why would they agree to that? Why would they agree to that? You already burned them a few times. Why would they agree to that? It makes no sense. They wouldn't agree to that. So all you had to do was get in, issue a formal apology. You don't even need to do it publicly. Do it in the back channels. Issue a formal apology. Say, my bad, that previous guy was crazy. We negotiated the deal. We know the deal's great. We know you've been abiding by it. Our bad, son. Anyway, here's what we're going to do. We're right back in it. Sanctions lifted. Let's do the damn thing. And they would have immediately let the IAEA uh, you know, regulators back in. They would have immediately started complying because they were fully complying the entire fucking time. But no, he didn't do it. He started, you know, trying to be, I won't be pushed around. I'm going to be a total dick just like the previous guy. So how about you go back to, to following it and we don't follow it yet. And then after you start following it, then I'll lift the sanctions. All right, let's have talks, but I'm not going to talk directly to you. I'm going to talk to my friend who's then going to talk to you because I can't talk directly to you. I'm a man. I'm strong. You're an idiot is what you are. You're a fucking idiot. And listen, sorry, but we're to blame in this whole scenario. And so he's botching this a thousand ways. Biden has done the worst job on foreign policy of of every different issue. Between bombing Syria, keeping us in Iraq and Afghanistan, messing up Iran. It's just, you know, it's Trumpian. It's absolutely Trumpian. And um, it's unacceptable. They need to change course. But I don't think they're going to do that, especially because you know, Biden's defense secretary takes a tremendous amount of money from, he took a tremendous amount of money from, I think it was Raytheon, over a million dollars. He used to be on the board of Raytheon. They paid him over a million dollars. Now he's the defense secretary. Gee, I wonder what his positions are going to be. I bet he's going to want to create fewer weapons and pull out of all these places. Yeah, right. And then you also have, what's his face? Was it Ronald Klain or Blinken? One of them, I think Blinken. One of them was, you know, doing lobbying on foreign policy and taking money from foreign governments and from defense contractors. And so there's always... They benefit from the hawkishness in a variety of ways. And consequences be damned. It doesn't matter that people in Iran can't get the medicine that they need because there's sanctions on that. So it's disgusting and it needs to stop. And this is probably one of the worst things that Biden has done. Okay. Final story of the day, guys. So we just got some new numbers on the impact of Trump's tax cuts, Um, and it's exactly what we expected. Take a look at this from CBS News. More than two dozen large U.S. companies have made a collective $77 billion in domestic profits in the past three years without any expectation of having to immediately pay federal taxes on their bounty. Indeed, they haven't expensed a single dollar for current federal taxes since Donald Trump pushed through a massive tax cut for corporations in the first year of his presidency, according to a new study. Many of those same companies had together paid billions of dollars in annual taxes prior to Trump's presidency. For instance, Salesforce.com has made $4.2 billion in the past three years before taxes, but since 2018, the software company hasn't put any money aside to pay federal taxes, according to its filings with securities regulators. In fact, Salesforce booked $4 million in tax credits since 2018. In the three years prior to Trump's tax cut, Salesforce earned far less but expected, 
but expensed far more for taxes, $35 million on $500 million in profits. So effectively, you have what's called a negative tax rate. You have profitable, giant corporations getting a net subsidy from taxpayers. That is, that's effectively socialism for the wealthy, socialism for corporations. That's corporate socialism. That's what that is. And it's from Trump. Mr. I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm going to look out for the regular guy. He's just giving all the money to corporations. So I have more for you. Ready for this? This is what some, some of the uh, big corporations paid in federal income tax over the past three years. Nike, zero. FedEx, zero. Dish Network, zero. Duke Energy, zero. Excel Energy, zero. DTE Energy, zero. First Energy, zero. Williams, PPL, CMS Energy, the Cabot Oil and Gas, zero, 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 zero. This is just some. Big corporations making a lot of money, paying nothing. Study came out um, about a year or so ago about how for the first time in U.S. history, the effective tax rate paid by average workers is higher than that of the effective tax rate of billionaires. Another report came out from the Rand Corporation not too long ago, and uh, they found that from the 1970s until today, the top 1% has stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90%. If you just kept the pay ratio the same uh, as the post-World War II period to today, the bottom 90% would have $47 trillion more dollars which works out to about $1,144 extra per person in the bottom 90% per month. System's rigged. System's rigged. It's incredible. You have corporations paying nothing in taxes as you carry the tax burden. Regular people carry the tax burden. Got to raise taxes on corporations. Got to raise taxes on the wealthy and billionaires. Got to redistribute that wealth to the people. Because right now, you're getting hosed. All right, guys. Time for your boy to go get the vaccine. I love y'all. I'll record some of it. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.